This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Becoming Who God Wants You to Be. In the first half, Dean M. Davies and Ryan T. Barrett share their addresses. God will use you, God will bless you, and be the vision. Then in the second half, Daniel E. Johnson speaks on the cycle of becoming. My beloved brothers and sisters, I am delighted to be with you today. I love this university for many reasons. Not the least of these is the fact that I attended school here, as did my wife, our five children, and four of five of their spouses. I suppose you could say that I have a personal financial investment in this university. I love that so many wonderful, intelligent disciples of the Savior come to this campus to dedicate themselves to the pursuit of truth and to seek temporal and spiritual knowledge. I've already said that I love this university. What I didn't tell you was that I also carry fond feelings for this building where we are seated today. As I was watching students entering the building this morning, it brought back a flood of memories. For a moment, it seemed as though time rolled back and I could see myself as a student your age entering this very building. However, in my case, the reason I most often entered this building was to work the midnight cleanup shift here at the Marriott Center. If you look around, you will see the very places I walked with broom and mop, tidying up after devotionals, basketball games, and special events. So, for those of you who might be tempted to litter while you are here, please keep in mind that I will be watching. <laughs> this campus is sacred. For while I worked and studied here, I also pondered questions that many of you might be asking at this time of your life. What should I study? What will become of me? Does the Lord care which career I choose? Will I ever meet someone, fall in love, and get married? Will I find happiness and success in life? I have to tell you that these questions felt consuming and even frightening at times. I honestly didn't know exactly where my life would go when I was your age. One thing is certain I never imagined as I was sweeping this great hall that one day I would be at this pulpit speaking to you. Today I want to address two of the questions you might be asking, things I myself desperately wanted to know when I was your age. First, if you dedicate your life to God's service, will He direct your steps and use you for His righteous purposes? Second, if you choose to follow the Savior and walk in the path of discipleship, will the Lord watch over you, guide you, bless you, and fill you with a spirit of joy and fulfillment. In the ten years prior to my being called to the presiding bishopric, I had the blessing and privilege of helping to identify and acquire sites for temples. A few years ago, President Monson announced that there would be a temple in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and so we went to work researching possible sites where that temple could be built. Two sites ultimately emerged, and it just so happened that they were just across the street from each other. With the approval of the First Presidency and after doing some preliminary due diligence, we began the process of acquiring the properties. To my great surprise, the owner of the first site, 
accepted our offer without negotiation. I can't tell you how remarkable this was. It has been my experience that when a property owner discovers that the interested party is the church, the price often goes up. To put this in perspective, the owner of the second property across the street responded with a price that was more than four times the price we offered. When I met with the owner of the first property, he explained he had owned the property for almost 25 years and could have developed it several times. But he had always felt that the property had a higher and better purpose. When we offered to buy it, he said it felt right. However, you probably already know that when it comes to building the kingdom of God, and especially when it comes to building temples, things often don't go as smoothly as we would hope. Shortly after we filed the paperwork, the city of Philadelphia, through a city-controlled agency, filed a legal claim that stopped the transaction. They wanted to take title to the property themselves. This was a very serious matter. We did everything we could to meet with the agency and remove the claim. We were unsuccessful. This was a real problem and very discouraging. We had felt so good about the property. We believed that this was the place where the Lord wanted His temple to be built. As a final step, we took our appeal of last resort to the mayor. He was the only one with the authority to change the situation. With a heavy heart, I flew to Philadelphia with the church temple architect. There we were joined by an Area 70 and two local church members. One of these members was someone you may have heard of. He, too, attended this university. In fact, he played on the BYU football team and eventually ended up playing professional football for the Philadelphia Eagles. Vi Sikahema is a well-known local celebrity in Philadelphia. He had completed a successful career playing football and after he had become a sports announcer on a local television station. Before the meeting with the mayor, our little group of five met together and talked about the purpose for the meeting. Then we knelt in prayer. We knew that we would desperately need the Lord's blessing that day. At the meeting, the mayor, a city council member, and some of the mayor's staff were in attendance. After introductions, my heart sank as I realized the atmosphere in the room was more than a little cold. It appeared evident that the decision had already been made, that the hearts of the city officials had been set against our building a temple there, and that this meeting was little more than a formality. As we started to explain the project, the mayor explained that his staff had assured him this property was better suited for commercial purposes. An office building or a hotel would not only benefit the city with jobs, but it would bring provided needed tax revenue. We would need to look for another site. Now, brothers and sisters, I have been in situations where all appears lost, where it seems that nothing you can do or say will make a difference. What I have learned in these situations is that if you are on the Lord's errand, do all that you can do with the talents and abilities God has given you, and then lift up your heart and plead for God to hear your prayer and intervene on your behalf. 
even though you may appear to be outnumbered, even though it appears that all may be lost, our beloved Father in heaven will reach out and take you by the hand. He will fight your battles. He will come to your aid. I know that the five members of the Church in that room were pleading in our hearts for heavenly help. What could we say or do that would help change the Mayor's heart and mind? I asked the Mayor if the architect could show a simple drawing or two of how the temple might look. He looked at his watch, a sign that he wanted the meeting to end, and said, Okay. But before the architect could begin, Brother Sikahama asked the mayor if he could say something. The mayor was acquainted with Brother Sikahama and said, Of course. Vi paused for a moment and then stood. In a humble voice, he went on to say something like this. Mr. Mayor, many years ago, as a young boy in Tonga, my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, sold our home. We sold fruits and vegetables. We sold everything we could to have enough money to travel to Hamilton, New Zealand, to be sealed as an eternal family. You need this temple. This temple will bless your city. This temple will bless your community. It will bless the people. Then he sat down. We were all very quiet. After a moment, the church architect stood and showed the mayor a few drawings of what a temple might look like. It was clear that in those few minutes something had changed. In reality, everything had changed. As the architect sat down, the African-American non-member city councilman asked to speak. He stood and said, Mr. Mayor, I have spoken with the leaders in the community and neighbors of this property. We want this temple. We need this temple. It will bless our city. It will bless our community. It will bless the people. As he spoke, you could feel the Spirit come into the meeting. It was a sacred moment. What was to have been a 30-minute meeting lasted for the better part of an hour and a half. Oh, how different things were after that sublime moment. To my surprise, at the end of this public meeting, the mayor turned and asked if I would offer a prayer in that setting. His heart had changed. The temple would go forward. It would be built on the selected site. Now, my dear friends, the Lord knows the end from the beginning. He knew that a young football player at Brigham Young University would one day need to be present in a meeting with city officials at the moment when a site for his temple would be discussed. He knew that Vaisikahema's humble testimony would need to be shared, that it would be the turning point that made the difference at a critical time. Heavenly Father knew Brother Sikahema, and he prepared him and put him in the appointed place so that his humble testimony would be shared and his faith and testimony help further the Lord's work among men. Now, my beloved brothers and sisters, God used Brother Sikahema. He will use you. If you give your hearts to him and strive to walk in faith and compassion on the path the Savior commanded, he will use you. He will use you in ways you cannot now imagine. But you might say, I'm no one special. I'm not a football player. I'm not a celebrity. 
I'm nobody. I'm average in every way. I'm not particularly smart, eloquent, coordinated, well-dressed, or even well-behaved. How could God use me? Don't you know that since the beginning of time, our Heavenly Father has reached out to those who are average and used them for His purposes? The Apostle Paul writes to you today, as he did to the ancient Corinthians, quote, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Gideon was a farmer, but God saw him as the man who would deliver Israel from bondage. When Samuel stood before the people to present to them their new young King David, the Bible tells us that Saul was so terrified that he hid himself among the stuff. Even though Esther was an orphan and a captive in a strange land, she saved her people from execution. Even today, the Jews celebrate the Feast of Purim to commemorate her courage. When it came time for our Savior to restore His Church to the earth, whom did He choose? There were many refined, educated, well-dressed, well-spoken people on the earth at that time, but our Savior chose a rough, humble boy, a farmer, a youth with very little formal schooling. Why does the Lord choose the weak things of the world for His purposes? Why does God choose the base things of the world and things which are despised? Paul answers his own question, that no flesh should glory in His presence. Why do you suppose God told Gideon to keep sending his troops home until he had only 300 men to face more than 100,000 of the enemy? Why do you think our Savior chose a fisherman to be his chief apostle who would lead the church after he was gone? Why do you suppose God chose an untutored farm boy to translate the Book of Mormon? First, because God doesn't look on our countenance or the height of our stature. The Lord seeth not as man seeth. For a man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Second, because God is able to take the most humble clay and create of it a masterpiece, truly. If God be for us, who can be against us? Third, God chooses the average and the weak so that no man can boast and say, I have done this out of my own ability. He uses ordinary earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. When an army of a hundred thousand is routed by a band of three hundred, people give praise to God. When a humble fisherman takes a small group of believers and shepherds them into a mighty church, people lift up their voices and give thanks to God. When a frontier boy leaves the plow and translates the most inspiring and life-changing text since the Bible, people glory not in the intellect of man but in the power of God.
Our Heavenly Father doesn't need you to be mighty, intelligent, well-dressed, well-spoken, or well-inherited. He needs you to incline your hearts to Him and seek to honor Him by serving Him and reaching out in compassion to those around you. I bear my personal witness that if God can use a humble janitor who spent many hours mopping and buffing the floors of the Marriott Center, He can certainly use you. The second thing I want to impress upon you today is that if you will follow Him in truth and might, He will bless you in ways you cannot comprehend. In 2006, President Hinckley and the First Presidency determined that there should be a temple considered for San Salvador, El Salvador. This was due to many reasons, not the least of which was that our beloved Church members who were traveling from El Salvador to the Guatemala City Temple were having difficulties in the travel, including armed robberies. We spent many days searching for appropriate temple sites, but none seemed right. I visited a number of properties, including a full city block, eight acres, located in the older central part of the city. As I drove from property to property, nothing seemed right. Eventually, I passed by an emerging area in the west part of the city. I felt something in that area and walked around a number of blocks. One property, surrounded by a wall, was of particular interest. I reached out to the owners through the real estate agent and received word that the property was not available. I returned home. But the prophet had said a temple would be built in San Salvador, and so I returned once again to look at other properties. None of them seemed right for the temple of God. Once again, I found myself drawn to the property with the wall, and I made contact again. Once again, they repeated that the property was unavailable. It was their historic ancestral home site, and it was not for sale. I returned home again, but couldn't shake the feeling that this is where the temple should be. I reached out and contacted the family and asked if they would at least meet with me. They agreed to do so. Once again, I traveled to San Salvador accompanied by Robert Fox, a friend and employee in the real estate division. That morning, we knelt in prayer in my room before beginning the day and asked for the Lord's assistance. We arrived at the home for the meeting with the Duenas family. As we drove through the gate, it was almost like entering into a sacred garden. There were trees and flowers, and the busy noise from outside stopped at the gate. We parked, and Mr. Roberto Duenas, his brother, and two of Roberto's sons were waiting for us. They greeted us and then escorted us into their ancestral home, quite large and spacious. We told them we were there by assignment of the Church President, President Gordon B. Hinckley, and that he wanted to bless the country and Church members by building a temple there. I showed pictures of other temples. I said that we felt their property, their ancestral home, was the right place. Well, it was no surprise when they once again declined, but we had to make the attempt. So for almost one hour, we tried every avenue of approach, such as a straight, outright purchase, an exchange of property, and every other option we could think of. But they were firm in their resolve and said no at every offer. Once again, 
Every door seemed closed. I had done everything I could do. I had prepared. I had done the best I knew how. But it simply was not enough. My heart was filled with an urgent prayer. Father, please help us to know what to say or do. But we could make no progress. At last it became evident that our trip had been in vain. It appeared that nothing would change their minds. As we began to prepare to leave, something happened. You could feel the Spirit of the Lord enter the room. It was tangible. Everyone in the room felt it. Roberto Duenas, who was not a member of the Church, began to cry, with tears cascading down his cheeks. It was one of the most powerful spiritual experiences I have ever felt. Finally, Mr. Duenas turned to his brother and said, If we can't sell our ancestral home, couldn't we sell the very best of the property we have across the street? His brother responded affirmatively. We then talked about the other property. They owned several hundred acres across the main road from their ancestral home, with the heart of the property jutting out slightly so that every car that traveled this road would see the temple. It truly was a miracle. From that moment forward, the blessings of the Lord attended the process. We acquired the property, and on August 21, 2011, President Henry B. Eyring dedicated it to the Lord's service. I testify that this beautiful temple graces the beautiful hills of El Salvador not as a result of anything Brother Fox or I said or did. That temple stands there today because of the unspeakable blessings and powerful ministerings of the Holy Spirit of our Almighty God. My beloved young brothers and sisters, if the Lord cares enough to send His Spirit and make available a site for a temple, do you not suppose that He will send His Spirit and prepare your heart and guide your steps not only this day but throughout the rest of your life and for the remainder of eternity? You are inexpressibly more precious to your Father in heaven than a plot of land. You are a beloved child of your eternal Father. You are the offspring of the God of the universe. Do you not suppose that He is mindful of you? Do you not suppose that He will use you and bless you in ways more glorious than it is possible for you to imagine? The scriptures tell us that if we, quote, trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not unto our own understanding, if in all our ways we acknowledge Him, He shall direct our paths, end of quote. The great King Benjamin perfectly summarized the message I wish to leave with you today. Will you listen to his words as though he were here before you today? He said, I would desire that ye should consider on the blessed and happy state of those that keep the commandments of God. For behold, they are blessed in all things, both temporal and spiritual. And if they hold out faithful to the end, they are received into heaven that thereby they may dwell with God in a state of never-ending happiness. I raise my voice in praise and witness to this truth. I testify with all the tenderness of my heart. I have seen the promised blessings of God fulfilled over and over 
and over again in my own life and in the lives of many others. I promise you that if you will but incline your hearts to your Father in heaven, if you will strive each day to love and follow Him more perfectly, if you will in compassion and kindness share the burdens and lift up the hands of those who are struggling around you, then the Lord God of heaven will direct your paths. He will use you for His sublime purposes. He will bless you in ways you cannot imagine. How grateful I am to our merciful Father, who knows us, who loves us, and who desires that we become the magnificent beings of grace and light we were designed to become. I pray that you will capture this vision and know within your hearts that if you seek to become true disciples of our beloved Savior, the Lord will use you. He will bless you. Of this I bear solemn witness in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You're listening to Finding Center. We've just heard from Dean M. Davies. And now we'll hear from Ryan T. Barrett for his address, Be the Vision. One hundred and two years ago, the student graduation speaker, Alfred Kelly, mounted the podium as I do now and forever changed the course of BYU. BYU was in financial difficulties and plans were in place to sell part of the school. However, Kelly had a vision. In his vision, he literally saw the present-day BYU that we now know. While on Temple Hill, everything he saw took on the appearance of people, young people, about his age, moving towards Temple Hill. He saw hundreds of them, thousands of young people, coming into view. He knew they were students, he said, because they carried books in their arms as they came. They entered into temples of learning with their books in hand. As they came out of them, Kelly said, their countenances bore smiles of hope and of faith. He observed that they seemed cheerful and very confident. Their walk was light but firm. His vision changed the course of BYU with all believing in the dream of a provost schoolboy, all believing the destiny of a great university, which that day had scarcely begun. I believe that we, the graduating class of 2015, are the students that Kelly saw over 100 years ago. What can we do to be the vision? I'll discuss three ways in which we can be the students that Kelly envisioned on Temple Hill. First, who we are is more important than what we know. Were the students that Kelly saw distinguished by their intelligence, looks, or skills? No, they were distinguished by their character, by their hope, faith, and cheerfulness. In our future careers and activities, how will we be distinguished? The same facts that are taught here at BYU are taught at other schools. Absolute zero is still negative 273 degrees Celsius here as it is at Harvard. D-Day was still on June 6, 1944, here at BYU, as it is at Yale. Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel is still a masterpiece of the Italian Renaissance, here, as it is at UCLA. If the facts are the same, what is it that makes us unique as BYU students? Why did you come to BYU in the first place? Maybe because you wanted to be in a specific program 
or be taught by a specific professor, maybe because your friends came here, or maybe because of the opportunity to be with those of similar values and beliefs. Whatever the reason, I hope you now know why you are a BYU Cougar and have been changed because of it. I hope you now know that secular knowledge does not clash with religious knowledge, but rather enhances it. To be the vision, we must be distinguished by our character, leadership, charity, kindness, honesty, and integrity. As BYU graduates, we have the unique responsibility and opportunity to be lights on a hill in this darkening world. Second, seek for and create temples of learning. We have been privileged to attend and study in temples of learning throughout our education. As we graduate, we'll no longer have the opportunity to be in these temples of learning that are spread throughout campus. To be the vision, let's take a piece of these temples of learning with us, wherever we are, whether it be at work or at home. Let us make our own temples of learning through our openness to innovation, desire for growth and improvement, and dedication to lifelong learning. Third, have a personal vision for your life. Just like Kelly's vision changed the course of this school, our own personal vision can change the course of our lives. This year's women's volleyball team used the hashtag WhyNotUs on their remarkable run to the national championship game. Likewise, I would pose the same question. Why not us? Why can't we become the world's most influential engineers and scientists, yet also be the most humble? Why can't we become the world's most innovative artists, teachers, and lawyers, yet also be the most kind? Why can't we become the world's most successful authors, businessmen, and doctors, yet also be the most family-oriented? Even if our plans and goals do not pan out exactly how we envision them, we will still benefit from having that vision. As we go forth to serve, let us remember our legacy and those who have gone on before us. Kelly's vision of us changed the course of BYU in the past, and now we, the graduating class of 2015, will change the future course of BYU through our influence for good, our drive to innovate and excel, and above all, our integrity and character in all situations. Remember, who we are is more important than what we know. Seek for and create temples of learning and have a personal vision for your life. As we do, we will be the vision. Thank you. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Becoming Who God Wants You to Be, We've just heard from Ryan T. Barrett. After the break, we'll return with Daniel E. Johnson for The Cycle of Becoming. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Becoming Who God Wants You to Be. Next is Daniel E. Johnson an assistant dean in the College of Physical and Mathematical Sciences at BYU at the time of this address, titled The Cycle of Becoming. I'm very humbled to be here today. First, I would like to say how much BYU means to me and my family. 
My father only had a formal education that went through the eighth grade. But he knew how much education meant, and four of his six children graduated from BYU. And two of our children also have degrees here, as well as a son-in-law and daughter-in-law. Having been born and raised in Provo, I have always loved this campus and the events that have been part of my life here. As a young man, I never imagined having the opportunity to finish my working career at BYU. However, after being here for these past 25 years, my feelings are even deeper for everything Brigham Young University represents. Words aren't strong enough to express my gratitude to a man named Bill Hayes for inviting me to be on this campus and to those who I've had the opportunity to work with since. I have chosen to speak today on the cycle of becoming, which describes our progress in this life and eventually the kingdom that we'll choose and that our Father in Heaven has prepared for us. The three parts are those of learning or knowledge, doing or in some cases not doing, and becoming. We've been taught that in our pre-mortal lives, at some point, our Father in Heaven presented a plan that would make it possible for us to move beyond what we had become. It seems the cycle, or some parts of it, had included that knowledge of our Father in Heaven's plan and our relationship with our elder brother as our Savior. We had done the things necessary to prepare us to move to the next stage, that of becoming mortal. Faith would have been part of the decision-making process in that pre-mortal life. The things we would experience in mortality had to be accepted on faith. And most importantly of all, we had to accept the fact that once we left God's presence, we could not return without the help of the Savior. So that faith had to also be centered in Jesus Christ and His ability to take us back to our Father in Heaven's kingdom. Unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, when we came to earth, the knowledge part of the cycle got erased, and we had to start that part over. The Bible Dictionary defines knowledge as the following. It's one of the attributes of God. Knowledge of divine and spiritual things is absolutely essential for one's salvation. Hence, the gospel is to be taught to every soul. How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? Knowledge is not obtained all at once, even by revelation, but line upon line and precept upon precept. President Boyd K. Packer said the following about this process. Things that grow slowly live longer. You will find that you will acquire the gospel line upon line, precept upon precept. You may grow slowly in mind and spirit, but you will learn, and your learning will stay with you. Close quote. Back to the Bible Dictionary. The scriptures and also our living prophets are given so that the people might have knowledge of things of God and know how to worship and know what you worship. Knowledge is one of the endowments of the Holy Ghost and one of the gifts of the Spirit. President Packer also said, The basic foundation of knowledge and testimony never changes. The testimony that God the Father lives, that Jesus is the Christ, that the Holy Ghost inspires us, that there has been a restoration, that the fullness of the gospel and the same organization that existed in the primitive church have been revealed to us. Those things are taught everywhere and always in our classes, the scriptures, the handbooks, and the manuals, in everything we do. The fundamental doctrine and instructions on the organization of the church are likewise found in the scriptures. In addition, there is another source of knowledge relating to what makes the church work. We learn from experience and observation. Close quote. At the same time we're working on the knowledge part of our eternal cycle, we have this cycle within a cycle going on where we are trying to get educated through experience and observation, as President Packer described, so that we can have the knowledge base to do things that will fulfill temporal needs and aspirations. 
Your academic knowledge will allow you to become, hopefully, engineers, doctors, nurses, lawyers, teachers, counselors, artists, etc. I can tell you as a parent that through your educational experience, regardless of what avenue you pursue, one of the things that your parents want you to become is employed. This cycle of learning, doing, and becoming is literally going on in some micro or miniature form every day of our lives. That's how we've become who we are today. The question then becomes, are we where we're supposed to be in becoming who we told our heavenly parents we would become? That's somewhat easier to measure from a temporal perspective than it is from a spiritual. From an academic perspective, you know where you are in school and how much you have left to graduate. There are systems put in place to help you measure your progress in becoming whatever professional career you're pursuing. One of your academic purposes is to assist you in gaining positions in this life that will allow you to provide for yourself and your family. The second part of the cycle in the ideal situation would be the wise use of our knowledge by doing things that keep us moving along life's path, both temporally and spiritually. This is often the tough part. Whereas in our pre-mortal lives, I would think that our knowledge was more complete. But there were certain things we couldn't do without a mortal body. In this life, with our somewhat limited knowledge, we often reach a point where we must make choices to do or not do things that meet immediate and long-term wants or needs. These choices and what we do shape our lives and define who we are and who we will become. Many of us know by first-hand experience that it's not always easy to do the right thing every time. Following are two stories of young men in different centuries who answered a call from a prophet that illustrate this. The first happened in 1856. Most of you have heard this story about the last of the handcart companies coming west. The Martin and Willie group was in desperate trouble because of a late start in early winter. President Brigham Young put out a call in general conference for the need for men, wagons, supplies, and teams to go and rescue these people. As part of these that left, Three young men, 18 years old, answered the call. Three 18-year-old boys belonging to the relief party came to the rescue, and to the astonishment of all who saw, carried nearly every member of that ill-fated handcart company across the snowbound stream. The strain was so terrible and the exposure so great that in later years all the boys died from the effects of it. When President Brigham Young heard of this heroic act, he wept like a child and later declared publicly, that act alone will ensure C. Allen Huntington, George W. Grant, and David P. Kimball an everlasting salvation in the celestial kingdom of God, worlds without end. Now fast forward to several years ago and consider three young men who also answered a call from the prophet at approximately the same age of 19 years and came to the missionary training center as missionaries. For some reason, they couldn't quite grasp why they were there and immediately started having problems. As their branch president, I received reports that they were causing problems in their classes and doing other inappropriate things. Although they were companions, I met with each one of them individually and discussed these problems and challenged them to remember who they were and who they represented, and if nothing else, simply look at their badge on a regular basis at the Savior's name as a reminder. A week later, I received a report that things had not improved. So on Sunday, I met with them again and, met and went over what was and wasn't appropriate. That same day, they went back to their room and played what turned out to be a very inappropriate prank on another missionary that led to more serious consequences. At this point, the decision from Salt Lake was that they apparently were not ready to be representatives of the church and needed to go home. In both cases, each of these young men had answered a call but chose to take different routes. What was the difference? 
two of the words that come to mind are agency and perspective. I'm guessing that each of us can find examples in our own lives where opportunities have been given, and in looking back, we can see that growth has taken place, or we missed out or paid the price for not following our conscience. In my own case, on an even more personal note, a few years ago I was preparing some rooms on our house for painting. I was going through the living room, patching nail holes. There was a den in the ceiling above the entryway. That house had a split entry. So the ceiling was a floor and a half from the entry landing. I got my six-foot ladder and put it on the landing, assuming it would be high enough. I took my perfotape mud and putty knife and climbed up the ladder. When I reached the top platform, I read, This is not a step. Now, I was sure that that did not apply to me and climbed up. You know where this is going, don't you? I stood on top of the ladder and reached as far as I could, fully extended. Just as I filled the hole with the first pass of the putty knife, the ladder tipped, and I crashed to the floor. Not the landing, but the basement floor. Now, the ladder is six foot tall, and I'm over six foot. There are some five steps to the basement, so my head was over 16 feet from the basement floor. When I crashed, our daughter and Linda rushed to see what happened. I was laying there, not able to breathe because the wind had been knocked out of me. They kept asking if I was all right. Finally, I caught my breath and told them I thought I was okay. I was hurting but could get up. They insisted I go to the emergency room. When the doctors checked me, I had two cracked vertebrae and a cracked rib and some bruises. Other than that, I was okay. I knew I had been blessed because I could have broken my neck or my back. When my wife called one of our daughters that evening to tell her about the accident, as she repeated it for our granddaughter, the granddaughter said, Tell Grandpa what he always told you kids when you were growing up. My wife said, What's that? She said, When you've got a dumb head, the whole body suffers. <laughs> she was absolutely right, and my words came back because my whole body was suffering. Maybe you can think of dumb things in your lives that may or may not have led to the whole physical body suffering. But is our spiritual body suffering because of poor choices, missed opportunities, and unrepented transgressions? We often know more than we do. As we mature, our goal should be to find wisdom in the application of the knowledge we are gaining along the way. The proper use of our knowledge is how we demonstrate wisdom. Making choices that leads to doing things that keep us on the eternal path to becoming what our Heavenly Father wants us to become must be part of our daily quest. Marion G. Romney said, Since knowledge is an acquaintance with or clear perception of facts, and wisdom is the capacity of judging soundly and dealing broadly with facts, especially in their practical application to life and conduct, it follows that wisdom is a product of and is dependent upon knowledge. Thus, as God's perfect wisdom is a product of His knowledge of all things, so man's wisdom is dependent upon His knowledge. As we consider our daily wants and needs, as mentioned earlier, we must find ways to be guided along the right path. On the one hand, we're told, It is not meet that I should command in all things. For he that is compelled in all things, the same is a slothful and not a wise servant. Wherefore, he receiveth no reward. On the other hand, we need help in keeping an eternal perspective. How do we get and keep this eternal perspective? It starts with the basic things we hear on a regular basis. Daily prayer and scripture studies are an absolute must. In my various ecclesiastical callings, I've never worked with anyone that had lost their testimony or fallen away while they were praying and studying the scriptures on a daily basis. While at the MTC, we often discuss doing things that will lead to becoming a true disciple of Jesus Christ. My approach in teaching that was one I call living above the line. 
the way it was explained was that there is this gumption trap some fall into regarding minimum maximums in life. You as students are very familiar with it. When you begin a class, your professor explains what the requirements are to pass and what level of performance you'll need for each grade. In many cases, the grade that you decide you want or need, as defined by the professor, represents the minimum you can do. If that's your main focus or objective for the class, then that minimum level becomes your maximum effort. As missionaries, I would challenge them to not get caught up in the minimum-maximum line. As a true disciple of the Savior, you wouldn't have to be reminded about the rules in the Little White Missionary Handbook. You wouldn't need to be reminded to get up at a certain time, to pray and study each day and seek the Spirit for guidance. You wouldn't even need to be reminded to be nice to your companion. All of those things would be the natural consequences of becoming a disciple of Christ. Access to the Spirit is much more available above the line. Your life can then leave the daily checklists of things I cannot do and things I should be doing and move into the realm of doing the right thing. In referring to these basic commandments, Elder Neal A. Maxwell describes the Thou Shalt Not commandments as the misery prevention ones. My words for those would be the Dumb Head Body Suffers commandments. After we get past those, then the major focus falls upon the Thou Shalt commandments. It is the keeping of the Thou Shalt commandments that brings even greater happiness. Close quote. Your efforts will be blessed in your school, your work and activities, and most importantly, your relationships with those around you, and ultimately the Savior Jesus Christ and your Father in Heaven. When our son was 11 years old, I was serving in a bishopric. There was an annual hike taking place with many of the scouting-age young men and some young women in this area called the 5020 that was established, I think, to help with some of the scout hiking requirements. It was held in the fall, and the idea was that you would hike 50 miles in under 20 hours. It started at the This Is The Place Monument on the east side of Salt Lake City and traveled south to Provo, finishing at a park on 5th West and Center Street. Many of the young men in our ward had participated the year before and were going to do it again. I asked my son if he would like to try it, even though I thought at 11 he might not be ready. He said he wanted to go. I talked with others that had done it and was told that it was critical to keep fluids and nourishment and to take care of your feet with adequate padding, changes of socks, and good shoes. The hike started at 6 o'clock in the evening and went throughout the night so that there was less traffic on the road. The first half of the hike went pretty well, except for the fact that I couldn't get him to drink and eat enough. Several hours after midnight, we reached the top of the point of the mountain, approximately halfway. He was pretty tired and worn out. There are many that only make it halfway, and so I told him we could make that the end of our hike and just go home. As he watched some of the older boys arrive after us and could see that they were every bit as tired as he was, he realized that they were not quitting. So after some hot chocolate and nourishment, I asked him what he wanted to do. He said, let's keep going. I asked him if he was sure, knowing that he had never even stayed up all night, let alone hiked that far. He said yes. We made it down this side of the point of the mountain, and it was obvious he was tiring very quickly. As we walked the old highway through Lehigh in the darkest part of the night, I looked down and the tears were running down his cheeks, and he was just barely moving his feet. I asked him if he wanted to quit and go home. He wouldn't answer. Knowing he's as stubborn as his father, I just put my arm around his shoulders and walked in silence for a while. Then I said, Jason, I can make you a promise. This is the hardest part of the hike. It's the darkest part of the night. And your body knows you should be in bed. But here's what I've learned after working some graveyard shifts. 
If you want to keep going, there's a fast food place down the road. We will stop there and have a hot breakfast. About that time, the sun should be coming up. There's something about the sun coming up after being up all night that gives us new life. I promise you that the hot breakfast and the sun coming up will give you new energy to finish the hike if you want to. No answer. He just kept shuffling along. When we got to the drive-in, we ordered breakfast. After eating and noticing the sun being up, I said, How do you feel? He said, Let's go, Dad. We took off, and I could hardly keep up with him. We finished in just under 18 hours. The next year, when the opportunity came again, he signed up, knowing he could do it. It was every bit as hard, but he knew what to expect. I've thought back at that experience with him many times since. My hope at the time was that he would also look back when things got tough, particularly on his mission or at other times, and know that the sun will eventually come up, new life will be given, and you'll get where you need to go if you'll keep going. We all have those times when it seems like the night will never end. It's dark all around, and we don't know for sure how far we have yet to go. Those are the times that we can feel the Savior walking beside us with His loving arm around our shoulder, encouraging us to keep going. President Dieter F. Uchtdorf said this in our recent April conference, Discipleship is a journey. We need the refining lessons of the journey to craft our character and purify our hearts. By patiently walking in the path of discipleship, we demonstrate to ourselves the measure of our faith and our willingness to accept God's will rather than ours. So what if we're not as far along the path of discipleship, or we've gotten off the path and now feel we can't become who we're supposed to be? Maybe we've disappointed ourselves or those who love us. Before we came to earth, we knew for a surety that the Savior would take care of all of our shortcomings. Now we can find that same assurance through the process of becoming. It doesn't matter where we are. It only matters that we are moving along the path and making our best effort. And again, this is a step-by-step process and a lifelong journey. Daily prayer to find out your Heavenly Father's will for your life and Scripture study will lead to a softer heart that can be influenced by the Spirit. That Spirit will prompt us to repent of those things holding us back from becoming and progressing. What a great blessing we have every week to take a broken heart and a contrite spirit to the sacrament meeting. Partake of the sacrament worthily and be as clean as if we were just baptized. Then be under the influence of the Spirit for the next thing we need to learn and do. Live worthy for the companionship of the Holy Ghost. Life can be challenging enough by itself. Don't try to go it alone. Now, where can we go to learn about this cycle in the most profound way? In our most recent general conference, we were reminded several times of the importance of finding ways to get to the temple on a regular basis. Not just attend, but actual temple worship. This is where we can go, and by performing work for others, we'll be taught all that we need to know regarding who we are. Elder Russell M. Nelson said this about the temple. Each temple is a house of learning. There we are taught in the Master's way. His way differs from modes of others. His way is ancient and rich with symbolism. We can learn much by pondering the reality for which each symbol stands. Teachings of the temple are beautifully simple and simply beautiful. They are understood by the humble, yet they can excite the intellect of the brightest minds. Where temples are so close, for many of us, we need to find ways to get there as often as we can. We need to take the opportunity to experience all of the ordinances by rotating our temple experience. And as Elder Richard G. Scott said in our last general conference, 
Listen carefully to the presentation of each element of the ordinance with an open mind and heart. In the 109th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, where we read about the Kirtland Temple Dedicatory Prayer, we learn some of the blessings of temple attendance. In verse 15, And that they may grow up in thee, and receive a fullness of the Holy Ghost, and be organized according to thy laws, and be prepared to obtain every needful thing. Verse 21, And when thy people transgress, any of them, they may speedily repent and return unto thee and find favor in thy sight and be restored to the blessings which thou hast ordained to be poured out upon those who shall reverence thee in thy house. 22. And we ask thee, Holy Father, that thy servants may go forth from this house armed with thy power and that thy name may be upon them and thy glory be round about them and thine angels have charge over them. In conclusion, the final part of the cycle is that of becoming. Regarding the temporal or vocational stage of our lives, Elder Russell M. Nelson said this about becoming at commencement exercises April 23, 2009. He called the chosen occupation only a means to an end. It is not an end in itself. The end for which each of you should strive is to be the person that you can become, the person that God wants you to be. The day will come when your professional career will end, the career that you will have labored so hard to achieve, the work that will have supported you and your family will one day be behind you. Then you will have learned this great lesson. Much more important than what you have done for a living is what kind of a person you have become. Keep learning and preparing for your ultimate graduation day. From time to time, ask yourself these questions. Am I ready to meet my Maker? Am I worthy of all the blessings He has in store for His faithful children? Have I remained faithful to my covenants? Have I qualified for the greatest of all God's blessings, the blessing of eternal life? I believe in our lives, no matter how busy they get, we will be given the opportunity and time to do what is expected of us if we stay focused on the little things. Each of us has a gift or gifts given for the specific purpose to do the things we're supposed to in order to become what our Father in Heaven wants us to become. Find your gifts and use them to bless others. We ought to have and we will have challenges. They will be the building blocks for your future life and the person you are becoming. It is my prayer that each of us can find true knowledge as revealed by the Holy Ghost through proper efforts of prayer, study, and temple worship that we may find answers to our prayers by Heavenly Father revealing who we really are and, just as importantly, whose we really are, that we might find joy in the journey towards discipleship, that we might each day move towards our goal of becoming more Christ-like by fulfilling our temple covenants, that each day we will approach with thanksgiving for opportunities to do the right things and know that our Father in Heaven will continue to bless us in our efforts. Elder Maxwell also said this, If we can get that witness for ourselves, that we are His, and that He loves us, then we can cope with and endure well whatever comes in the varied tactical situations of life. I know the gospel is true. I love my Father in heaven and His Son, Jesus Christ. I know that through the Atonement we can fulfill Heavenly Father's plan to gain eternal life and become all that He has promised we can become. And I so testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Becoming Who God Wants You to Be, with thoughts from Dean M. Davies, Ryan T. Barrett, and Daniel E. Johnson. 
Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.